Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino. And in late April, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education released a groundbreaking report on social media censorship by public colleges and universities in America. The survey found that the vast majority of the 200 schools surveyed use a blacklist of secret words created by Facebook to automatically censor comments on their social media pages. The survey also found that colleges compile custom lists that collectively ban more than 1,800 unique words and phrases. For example, the University of Kentucky blocks the words birds, chicken, chickens, and filthy, presumably in this case to censor criticism of Aramark, the company that provides food for the university under a $250 million contract. A number of institutions also block the names of political candidates, such as Trump, Bernie, or Hillary. Texas A&M also blocks references to hook'em horns, that gesture of their University of Texas rivals, the Longhorns. Oklahoma State blocks mentions of its rival football team, including the phrase Boomer Sooner. And of course, not to be outdone by its rival, the University of Oklahoma blocks a middle finger emoji. And the list goes on. What's more, the report found that 87% of colleges blocked particular users on Facebook or Twitter. Georgia State University blocked a Georgia for Bernie Twitter account. Mississippi State University blocks the group Legalize Marijuana in Mississippi, and the University of Alaska Anchorage blocked an Alaskans for Trump account. Now, joining us today to discuss this report and the implications this censorship has for the First Amendment and the mission of higher education is the author of the report itself and the director of FIRE's Individual Rights Defense Program, Adam Steinbaugh. Adam, welcome back onto the show. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about the inspiration for this report. When did you start working on it and why? Uh, I believe that I, I started working on it in about October of 2018. Uh, and this was in the wake of the federal district court opinion concerning President Trump's blocking of his critics on Twitter. Uh, and that uh, ruling uh, held that uh, when President Trump used Twitter, he was creating a public forum uh, and in blocking his critics on there, uh, he was keeping his critics out of that public forum in violation of the First Amendment. Now, for our listeners who aren't familiar with forum analysis, what does it mean to create a public forum? Forum analysis is a way of looking at the First Amendment and restrictions on speech uh, in the context of, in general, looking at physical locations uh, and looking at who is trying to access that location and what the purpose of that location is for to determine uh, what types of restrictions the government can impose uh, in that area. So like a public park is a public forum, correct? Exactly. That's uh, what is called a traditional public forum. Those are the places where uh, government hasn't set aside those places for public discussion, but they've traditionally been used for public discussion. So a park or a sidewalk, uh, generally outdoor sort of areas. But not like a private business, for example. You don't have a right to walk into a private business and say whatever you want. That, would no. be, that wouldn't be considered a public forum or even a limited public forum, right? 
No, if you walk into your local bar or restaurant uh, or uh, Kinko's and say, I want to set up my soapbox here to rant about the wig party, uh, they can say, you know, we don't like your types around here. Uh, Get out and then put your picture up on the wall and make sure that you never come back in. None of that implicates the First Amendment. But this district court case that you're referencing that was part of the inspiration for the social media report, the court held that Twitter is a public forum, at least insofar as it's used by the president. Is that correct? The space on Twitter is a public forum. Uh, So the space uh, beneath the president's tweets where people can discuss, that is viewed itself as a public forum. But Twitter itself is a private company, uh, and it is not bound by the First Amendment. The First Amendment uh, actually protects Twitter's right uh, to determine who can tweet uh, and what can be posted on their own website because they're a publisher. Uh, and they have freedom of the press to determine what they want to publish. Uh, but when a state actor comes in uh, and utilizes that space, the First Amendment kicks in because now there's state action. Uh, so, uh, for example, if a uh, the mayor of your local town rented out uh, the uh, local theater to host a community forum and said, "Come on in, what, you know, come in, come all. Uh, you can let's discuss the proposal for a local park or you know some other government affair." Uh, and then says, "No Republicans allowed or no Democrats allowed." Uh, even though the venue itself is a private establishment, it is being used by the government for the purposes of the forum. So the government has created the forum by renting out the space. So you saw this case happen, which, and by the way, I think the case is called Knight Institute v. Trump. You saw this happening. We, of course, work in the college and university setting, and that got you wondering whether public colleges and universities, of course, public colleges being bound by the First Amendment, whether their social media pages are also public forum as far as the First Amendment's concerned. Exactly. I saw it kind of as a microcosm to look at Uh, what the broader government actors are doing on social media. So this is a way to uh, go across the country and select a certain amount of institutions within each state uh, and do a survey uh, to see, uh, to collect a broad number of uh, entities and find out what types of speech they're blocking and what types of users they're blocking. Now, did you have an instinct that colleges and universities were blocking expression or particular users on social media? Or was this kind of a shot in the dark, just trying to cast a wide net and see what colleges and universities might be doing? We've seen some instances of universities blocking content on their Facebook pages. Uh, For example, there was a uh, lawsuit filed uh, by the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, uh, represented by the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, in Texas. And they had been blocked by a public university there uh, from posting content uh, relating to animal rights issues and to animal testing. Uh, so we had seen uh, that there had been that sort of uh, restriction, and we took the EFF's uh, request and created our own request uh, that we could duplicate across uh, about 200 institutions. So you engaged in this really large effort to request public records from these colleges and universities. How many records did you request? How many did you get back? And what was that process like? Were the universities or colleges forthcoming? Uh, We surveyed uh, just north of 200 institutions uh, in 47 states and the District of Columbia. Uh, And 
there are a couple states that uh, exempt their institutions from uh, their public records laws. Uh, so we didn't get all 50. Uh, and we weren't, what we tried to do is we tried to uh, identify five institutions within each state. Uh, the three uh, four-year institutions with the highest enrollment and then the two two-year institutions with the highest enrollment. Uh, and not every state had uh, that number of institutions. Uh, but uh, the good news here is that when we did this broad survey, a lot of institutions responded fairly quickly uh, and they provided it without much objection. Uh, not all of them did. Uh, a number of them resisted uh, <laughs> to some ridiculous uh, ends at some at, at points. You know, what were some of the ways the few schools who did resist resisted? There was a public institution in uh, Michigan. I believe it was Michigan State, uh, but they uh, came back and used a restriction that had been created uh, on their public records laws in the wake of 9-11 that is intended to uh, protect public safety. Uh, and they came back and said, well, public safety requires that we not tell you who we block on Facebook or what words we block on Facebook. <laughs> and then you all, there was also a school in Baltimore that just outright ignored you. Right. Yeah, we, we had a couple of institutions that uh, ignore us and you know, we give them the benefit of the doubt sometimes uh, when uh, they don't respond. We'll write in again and say, hey, just wanted to make sure this didn't want didn't slip through the cracks because that happens. Um, uh, and often they would write back and say, yeah, yeah, we're on it. We're, we'll get back to you. And then radio silence. What were you actually requesting of the colleges and universities when you submitted these public records requests? Because in Fire's press release, the th I think the three big things that you found were that a lot of colleges and universities block particular users. Uh, a lot of colleges and universities block particular words and phrases. And then there's also a large majority of colleges and universities who use the, these Facebook created lists of words that they can ban. And, and Facebook has different tiers at which you can ban certain words. They have a very restrictive tier and then a less restrictive tier. Did you know about Facebook's uh, list of blacklisted words or was that something you found out through the course of a public records request that casted a wider net? Uh, I knew about that beforehand. Uh, I had created my own page on Facebook so that I could look at the administrative settings and kind of tinker around and see what information was available. Uh, and then once I knew that, what I did is created a request or used the EFF's uh, request uh, to essentially ask the institution uh, to go to their social media manager, have them log into their official Facebook or Twitter page, and go to the settings page and uh, print it out uh, or uh, produce those uh, information or that information. Um, so I knew a little bit about it, uh, but unfortunately, Facebook does not really provide a whole lot of information about what those uh, lists entail. Uh, and what they do is uh, if you go to a university's uh, Facebook page and you type in a comment on a post there or a post of your own on their page, uh, when you hit post, uh, Facebook will run every word in your post through a filter. And if any of the words in your post match either Facebook's own filters uh, that a university can turn on or off, uh, or the custom filters that the university creates, then your post will automatically be hidden. But you'll never know about it because your post will still be visible to you and your, and your friends, but not to the public. So you don't even know if your post has been removed. And Facebook doesn't give you any notice of this? No. And Facebook also doesn't distinguish between public entities, maybe a local government's, uh, lo local towns, uh, 
mayor's page or a college or university, a public college or university, it allows these this list of banned words to be utilized by anyone regardless of their relationship to the government and therefore their requirements under the First Amendment. Exactly. And has Facebook considered or do you have any idea of whether they've considered changing this policy in light of the Knight Institute v. Trump case? I don't know if they've considered it or not, uh, but we wrote in with the EFF uh, to Facebook pointing this out and saying, look, uh, you should distinguish between uh, users when they are a government actor or not, uh, and you should make the filters that you create public so that people can see uh, how or what is on the filters uh, and how they might impact speech. So is this, you know, a lot of times you'll get a district court case, which is kind of the the lower level in, in federal courts, there's then an appeals court and then ultimately the Supreme court, if you want to take it up there. Uh, but a lot of times there's, there's split opinions in various different courts as to a particular issue of the law. Is this kind of a, uh, an open question still, or have other courts weighed in and it's starting to become pretty solid law, which would then kind of, uh, suggest that, Facebook and these public colleges and universities really need to get in line? It's not a closed question yet. Uh, the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in on this at all. Uh, and there is at least one district court opinion uh, that does not hold that these are public forums. Uh, but the vast majority of courts that have addressed this have held that these create uh, at least some type of forum uh, and that viewpoint discrimination uh, is not permitted. Now, a question that I have, uh, I grew up in the age of MySpace. I used MySpace a lot and it was a very exciting platform because you could do a lot to your MySpace pages. You could manipulate the HTML, the CSS, but because it was so open, it became pretty spammy. Uh, you know, you would get advertisements or comments on your page to lose 60 pounds in three months or make 5,000 bucks in a week. Uh, and you had to be pretty on top of it. Uh, Facebook, you don't really see those sorts of comments. Uh, Facebook, for whatever reason, it has an AI that's sophisticated enough to remove that spam. Now, is removing that spam, for example, on a government page, would that be violative of the First Amendment? Or can Facebook walk a line where it can create a platform and a user experience that isn't spammy while also respecting the First Amendment? Well, if Facebook does it on their own, it doesn't violate the First Amendment. So if Facebook goes on and deletes every post with a vowel in it, uh, the government hasn't told them to do that. So there's no state action. Uh, but when the government says, Facebook, you should be deleting the following posts and Facebook uh, does that, uh, it does create state action. Uh, and uh, it might violate the First Amendment depending on the type of filter and depending on how the institution has characterized their uh, forum. So uh, commercial speech is not afforded as much protection uh, under the First Amendment as political speech, for example. Uh, and a government could say, you know, this is for non-commercial or this our website is for non-commercial uh, communications and then create a filter that would be uh, targeting uh, speech that is uh, purely proposing a commercial transaction. So, for example, 
blocking speech that tells you how you can lose 60 pounds in three months, but not blocking speech that has phrases or words like uh, Trump or Hillary or Biden in it. Exactly. Uh, and coincidentally, um, before I went to law school, I actually worked at MySpace on the anti-spam team. Uh, and I thought that we did a little bit better than that. Uh, <laughs> my, but, that was like, what, 15 years ago. So yeah. my memory might be fogged. But I do remember MySpace having a lot more, a lot less control than the modern social media companies have insofar yeah. as what you could do on your particular pages. The tools that, that we had at MySpace were a lot less sophisticated than... Uh, what Facebook uh, and Twitter and other uh, social media outlets are able to utilize now. Uh, but it did, it did have an important lesson in that, uh, as Mike Masnick over at TechDirt uh, is fond of saying, uh, moderation at scale uh, is, is basically impossible. Um, and if you create a filter that uh, targets individual words or phrases, you're going to wind up sweeping in a whole bunch of speech that you don't really intend to suppress. Uh, and that people probably don't want to be suppressed and might be surprised if it's suppressed. So these social media companies, I'm seeing a lot right now uh, of criticism of these social media companies uh, surrounding coronavirus and the uh, mis- uh, and the uh, filtering out of, of what's deemed misinformation. Do you feel as though they're kind of in, in between a rock and a hard place, not only when it comes to considering how these colleges and universities need to abide by the First Amendment and the tools that it can offer to these colleges and universities, but also being a forum for free speech, uh, for the discussion of ideas, even if those ideas are misinformed. How do you personally feel that these college, uh, that these platforms should address, one, the, the public actor sphere, but also generally just the, the forum for public discussion, the marketplace of ideas, that some people consider these platforms to be? I think that uh, the First Amendment grants uh, social media outlets the right to try to create their own communities and uh, their own systems so that they can uh, further conversation in ways that uh, you or I might not uh believe is a wise way to proceed uh, with, respect, with, with respect to speech. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, you know, their having that right doesn't immunize them from criticism for those decisions. Uh, so uh, like I said earlier, if Facebook wants to delete every post with a vowel in it, the First Amendment gives them that right. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they can't be criticized for doing so because that would be uh, a very bad thing to do. Uh, and uh, I think that they also serve a, uh, or they occupy a role in which the debates that we have about what speech should be permitted on Facebook or Twitter or social media uh, can help shift and or shape uh, public perceptions about free speech rights in general. So although you don't have a right, uh, a First Amendment right to post on Facebook or uh, Twitter, uh, the debates we have about whether or not they should be publishing things uh, will uh, influence how people perceive what government should do. Um, so I think that is part of why it's particularly important that when these uh, social media outlets interact with government actors, they should be uh, very careful to distinguish uh, uh, their users' rights and to protect their users' rights against government interference with those rights. I have seen some criticism, particularly within conservative circles, of how 
it's perceived that Facebook or Twitter filters out uh, what's considered conservative or right-wing speech. And there have been some movements understanding that Facebook and Twitter and these other social media companies are private companies. There have been some movements to try and create alternative social media companies, which is certainly within anyone's right if they do not like the community standards that exist within a particular social media company. But those haven't found much success, which might suggest that uh, they weren't done very well or there's not the market for those sorts of platforms that people thought there would be or that it's just you have that scale problem where a social media company can only be successful uh, when it reaches uh, a certain certain scale. But I've also heard people argue that social media companies, in particular the ones like Facebook and, and YouTube uh, uh, or Google, which owns YouTube, are, are almost today like public utilities and therefore should be governed uh, as public utilities. I'm not particularly familiar with the law surrounding, for example, the phone lines that bring me my phone into my home. Uh, but are those governed with like First Amendment considerations in mind, for example, the phone company can't block certain speech on the phone lines, can it? I don't know if there is a First Amendment or a constitutional restriction uh, that, that requires them to do that. Uh, but I do think that uh, those are different in that in many places, the state grants those institutions or those companies a monopoly over uh, who can access those lines? Um, so the states may, as part of their uh, agreements with uh, the uh, telecommunications company, say, you know, you will not block users or block uh, contracts based on you know some sort of criteria. I don't know that they do that. I am not at all an expert in communications law. Uh, you're not an FCC commissioner, is what you're no, saying? No, fortunately, no. Uh, but uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, are different in that uh, while they are enormously popular, uh, they don't control access to the internet uh, entirely. Uh, you can start your own Twitter or Facebook uh, and try to uh, get your message out that way. Uh, you can start your own .com and get your message out that way. Um, you, know, you don't have a, just because something is popular doesn't mean that you have your own right to use that service. Uh, And in fact, there was a Supreme Court case uh, in uh, arising out of the, I believe the the late 70s, uh, when uh, TV stations and newspapers were being bought up by these massive conglomerates. uh, And uh, politicians uh, complained that uh, they were being written poorly about by the local newspapers uh, and they wanted an absolute right of reply so that whenever they thought they were being defamed or criticized by uh, a local newspaper, uh, there would be a statute that said that the newspaper has to give them a chance to respond in print in the same uh, or the next issue or the same issue uh, in the same sort of manner. Uh, And the Supreme court looked at it and said, look, you know, although uh, people perceive that there is, or there are fewer opportunities to access or to publish in print, uh, and that because of the rise of these conglomerates, there are uh, less diverse views. Uh, It is still up to the editorial discretion of the newspaper to decide what content they want to publish or or don't want to publish. Uh, And if they don't want to publish a rebuttal by someone they've criticized, then that's their right. Uh, 
And, you know, that might not be uh, wise. It might not uh, facilitate the marketplace of ideas. Uh, But the First Amendment grants them the right to decide what to publish and what not to publish. And there was also that sort of regime in broadcasting as well. I'm blanking on the name of that policy now, but uh, it essentially required giving equal time to people of various uh, different ideologies or political viewpoints on air. So example, you had a cons- uh, you had a Republican on, you also had to have a Democrat on, and I, I believe they have something like this still in Europe. And I, for the life of me, can't remember what it's called anymore. That is, there's an arguable difference there, at least when it uh, is applied to uh, broadcast television in that there is a limited amount of band waves. Uh, so it's very difficult to create your own broadcast television station uh, because there are only you know, a, a certain number of television, television stations that can exist at all. Uh, I don't know that I agree with that logic. And I think that uh, it's sort of time is sort of erasing the uh, reasoning behind it uh, in that now we have cable television and uh, the limit on, or the natural limit on bandwidth or, or, or uh, wavelengths that you can use to broadcast uh, is sort of becoming irrelevant now. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking now on online and it says that equal time rule originated in the Radio Act of 1927 and was later superseded by the Communications Act of 1934 and was created because the FCC was concerned that broadcast stations could easily manipulate the outcome of elections by presenting just one point of view and excluding other candidates, although it says the rule was temporarily suspended by Congress in the 60s permit the Kennedy Nixon's debates to take place. Uh, it's called the fairness doctrine mm-hmm. um, or no, it says the equal time rule should not be confused with the now defunct FCC fairness doctrine, which dealt with presenting balanced points of view on matters of public importance. But all this is neither here nor there because neither of these regimes I believe is in place anymore. And as you say, technology has kind of superseded them anyway. Uh, you have cable news, you have video on demand, you have so many other ways to get your message out there aside from the major broadcast networks and uh, your local newspaper. So, and, and that, that kind of brings me back to the, the original question I asked about these social media companies is that we as humans have the status quo bias. Thinks the things, the way, the way things are now is the way they will always be. But, you know, MySpace was the most popular social media platform in the world uh, in the mid two thousands. And now I don't think it even exists anymore. At least I can't go to, MySpace and get my band's music from the the mid 2000s that used to be hosted on MySpace. And we're already seeing the rise of different social media companies like Instagram and TikTok uh, is taking off. I've never used TikTok, but I know it's it's pretty popular amongst uh, the younger generations. So uh, technology also has a way of ameliorating these problems, but the principles, a lot of the principles, at least insofar as free expression and the First Amendment are concerned, remain. Uh, the the forum question will be just as valid on TikTok if you are a public figure who who moves uh, to that platform as it was on Facebook. So where do you see the courts heading on this question and what have the developments been since you first started doing this project in 2018? Well, uh, it hasn't developed a whole lot since then, except that the uh, Trump case that had inspired this uh, has now gone up to the uh, Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, uh, which upheld the district court's ruling. Uh, and there is currently another one pending before, I want to say, the Sixth Circuit. Uh, 
Um, so we're seeing more of these cases move to the appellate level, uh, and we might get uh, some further clarification there, or perhaps a uh, dissent there or a minority viewpoint there. Uh, but uh, I think that you know, these apply in this context to Facebook and Twitter, uh, but it's not clear how they will apply to uh, Instagram or TikTok uh, or other uh, websites quite yet. Um, I think that the logic behind it will probably, uh, I think it is sound and will probably extend to those websites, but I don't think that we've seen any uh, holdings on them yet. What was the most surprising thing that you learned in doing this project? Was it just the sheer number of colleges and universities who utilized these tools provided by Facebook? Or was it something else? Was it something related to the public records requests and how responsive or not responsive the colleges and universities were? I would say that on the bright side, I was pleasantly surprised by how many institutions actually did uh, respond forthrightly. Uh, And I was also surprised by how many took it as uh, an opportunity to look at their own records and say, is this the best practice? Uh, Is this the right thing to do? Uh, And then wrote back to us and said, you know, we uh, here are the records, uh, but we're going to change the way that we do things. uh, And we are going to uh, unblock these users or unblock these terms. Uh, and change our policies moving forward. I thought that was uh, a pleasant surprise. Um, And it's one, by the way, that I think that uh, student newspapers can replicate. Uh, We created a copy of uh, the request that we used uh, so that student newspapers or anyone else who wants to borrow from it uh, can see what their institution does, as long as it's a public institution, uh, or their local governments, uh, or uh, maybe even the federal government. the other thing I was surprised by was uh, how often institutions actually restricted uh, speech on matters concerning their own campuses. Uh, so the uh, tendency of institutions to take a look at the criticism that they were getting uh, or the controversies that they were facing uh, and just add those terms to their filters so that they could hide all of it. Yeah, one of those was the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which had a big on-campus controversy involving the Silent Sam Confederate monument on that campus. There was a protest surrounding the monument. There was a large constituency that wanted the monument taken down because it was a relic of the Confederate era and was a sort of homage to the the Confederate soldiers. But there was also constituency within North Carolina that wanted to keep it up. And so during those protests, uh, the university blocked posts containing the phrase Silent Sam as well as mentions of, of Nazis. And then there was also uh, Clemson University, right, that blocked mentions of Harambe, which was the gorilla that was shot in the Cincinnati Zoo, uh, because there was an on-campus controversy uh, involving the censorship at Clemson of, of, of Harambe means. But uh, Clemson, correct, was one of the schools that responded to you and said, you know, we're not doing this anymore. Right? Yeah, they, they did. And so did uh, North Carolina. Uh, we wrote to them and pointed out that Uh, when you block a term like uh, Silent Sam, that will restrict speech uh, that is relevant to the things that they post. So if the university posted something about uh, Black History Month, a student could uh, respond to that and say, why are you uh, praising Black History Month if you've got this Silent Sam statue uh, on campus? How do you explain that? Uh, But that student's post would automatically be hidden, even though it's very relevant to that discussion. 
so that's a good example of why these sorts of filters may not be a good fit for uh, online discussions like these, because you will wind up uh, eliminating speech that people would reasonably, I think, expect uh, to be protected. You wrote a blog post for FIRE outlining what you think colleges and universities should do moving forward in response to the developments, not only in the Trump Twitter case, but also just kind of as best practices and as requirements under First Amendment and the requirements as uh, institutions of higher learning. You also had a, a set of requests that you sent directly to Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook outlining what Facebook can do to help bridge this gap or uh, help take seriously the First Amendment considerations of public institutions. So what were those steps for both of those institutions that you advise they take moving forward? Well, I think that the main one, at least for the public institutions themselves, is to craft a public policy that explains what the purpose of their Facebook pages is for. Uh, I think that uh, will help protect them from uh, being held to a more robust First Amendment standard if, uh, for example, a court determined that it was a designated public forum as opposed to a limited public forum, uh, which means that you know, if the uh, if a university wants to set aside its Facebook page only for the discussion of uh, things that are relevant to the university and to the things the university posts, uh, that might be uh, a reasonable uh, limit. So, uh, for example, courts have often held, or at least one court has uh, addressed the uh, a social media policy in which the university or a public actor, not a university, uh, had said that posts must be relevant to or comments must be relevant to the post to which they are responding. Uh, that is a viewpoint neutral restriction, uh, and it is probably reasonable. Uh, and creating a policy that sets that out in advance uh, is going to help protect uh, not only the university, uh, but also uh, help clarify to users uh, what they should expect from the institution. Uh, institutions should also be uh, consistent in how they create these policies and how they enforce them, because if they create a policy and then uh, only enforce it for the speech they don't like, uh, then it will give at least the appearance uh, of viewpoint discrimination, which is unlawful. Uh, so that is the, the main two ways that universities can uh, address this, uh, as well as uh, turning off the uh, filters. Uh, and then on the side of Facebook, uh, what sites like Facebook and Twitter can do is distinguish between public and private users uh, of their services uh, and change the tools that they grant to those users. Uh, so, for example, if uh, a, a congressman signs up for Facebook and creates an official Facebook page for his congressional office, uh, Facebook uh, should ask them to uh, create a public policy and say you can't use filters and you can't block people uh, unless or until you've created this policy. Um, so that way the, the public actor is on notice that when they are using Facebook uh, to limit speech or users, they might be implicating the First Amendment rights of those users. All right. Well, Adam, I think I'm going to leave it there. For those of our listeners who want to learn more about this report, you can visit thefire.org, our website, and we have a whole landing page devoted to it uh, where you can find the report itself, but also some of the follow-up articles that Adam has written about his experience doing the public records requests 
his requests uh, or ideas for how colleges and universities and Facebook should move forward and uh, much else. So I urge our listeners to go check that out. The report is called No Comment, Public Universities, Social Media Use, and the First Amendment. Our guest was Fires Adam Steinbaugh. Adam, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We also take email feedback at so to speak at thefire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, reviews do help us attract new listeners to the show. And you can do that by going to Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever else you get your podcasts. And until next time, stay safe and thanks again for listening.